The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Army of determination or resolve. <laughs> so it's a little bit timely, but actually New Year's resolutions tend to give this quality kind of a bad name. So I want to talk a little bit about the Buddha's uh, instructions on working with resolve and determination. First of all, it's one of the paramis. I, I, maybe you're familiar with this list. It's a list of ten qualities that our practice cultivates as we work through it. And those are generosity, loving-kindness, renunciation, patience, virtue, truthfulness, this quality of determination or resolve, energy, equanimity, and wisdom. So... Um, this uh, determination is pretty far down the list and in the context of the paramis it's said to support all of the rest of them and it helps bring the rest of them to perfection. Parami is actually a word that I think somehow means perfection. So it's bringing these qualities to perfection. And it's also supported by all the other paramis. So the word itself in Pali, if you're interested, is aditana. And adi means further, higher, or fuller. And tana is a foundation or a standing place. So we're really asking ourselves, you know, where do you take your stand, right? What's ultimately worth basing your life on? And then what's it like to do that? And what qualities help you do that? So in recognizing this quality in our own lives, we can distinguish it from less skillful ones that are similar, like just kind of egoic, willfully insisting on having your way, forcing something to happen or not happen. It's really out of your control, right? Some of us have a sort of compulsive perfectionism or a need to behave all the time, be good girls and boys. And, you know, although all those things can kind of be mixed up with the quality, they're all based in a way in aversion or greed or delusion. And they're not the same thing as this quality of a very clear and firm resolve and a determination in a wholesome direction. So what is this based on? Um, there is a sutta that I'll return to later, Majjhima 140. And in there the Buddha says that a person has these four determinations. One should not be negligent of discerning wisdom, should guard the truth, should be devoted to relinquishment and train only for peace or calm. It's translated various ways. So those four qualities are a little bit what I want to talk about this morning. Um, yeah, so in that sutta then he gives a series of practice instructions for a fairly advanced meditator that he's come across and they culminate in a description of the complete freedom from suffering that is the you know, ultimate uh, fruit of this path in terms of those terms. But meanwhile, all along our path and right from the beginning, even if this were your first time here, we can start to understand how our Dharma practice is orienting us, our intentions around these four qualities. So they're wise intentions that are fulfilled more and more fully as we progress in the practice and they're wholesome things to work, to resolve, to work on, and they also function as kind of guide rails or guard rails to keep us on track in working with our strengthening capacity 
to have this quality of resolve in wise ways that doesn't fall into overstriving. So the first quality of discerning wisdom. So first when we come to this practice we need to get a sort of understanding of what's meant by wisdom. And then we practice so that we learn to have some experiences of it directly. And then we resolve to recollect and use what we've learned. How as we as we have realizations and insights about wisdom, we bring them to mind and we use them and we begin to trust that they're going to be there for us in situations of suffering. So I'd say that this discerning wisdom is the process of turning to look at how our minds present and create experience. It's a way of seeing that's not, that's looking at more carefully learning to take apart our experience. So in the beginning meditation instructions, we learn to discern bodily sensations from our commentary about them, right? We begin to see beneath words and concepts like pain or my arm or something. And we just, we begin to be able to perceive this world of momentary blips of changing pressure and heat and vibration. And that's the direct experience that can be discerned from our thoughts and, and commentary about it. And we can learn to see a thought as just a thought. It's a product of our conditioning. It's not necessarily a true statement about the world. Um, we learn to recognize emotions as a process that's involving bodily sensations and thoughts. And we learn to see these as passing reactions to experience and not take them on as who we are or something that's necessarily always going to a permanent, you know, thing that we need to make a bigger deal of than it is. So as our discernment deepens in this way, it's like we take off lens after lens that we've been wearing and we look at it and say, oh, look, here's how this is working. And then even if we need to put it back on, we can see through it in a different way. And we also get wiser about how progress happens. How to, how, where are the leverage points in our experience? So we learn that we don't have direct control over an awful lot that goes on in the world. You know, what other people do, what, you know, governments do, all kinds of stuff. Much as we might wish, we can't directly influence it. But as we practice, we strengthen these muscles that we mostly didn't know we had that we can use to direct our attention and our intention. And this is in, this then affects the conditions of our hearts and minds, which in effect has a whole lot to do with how we react to what happens and how much we suffer. So as these basic Dharma understandings begin to sink in and take root in us, then we can really begin to discover the power of this parami of resolve. Because then we can make a clear intention to practice in ways that are skillful and we begin to have the, the understanding to help us stick with it. So something like establishing and making good use of a daily sitting practice or a weekly practice of coming here. If you ever go on retreat, it takes a good deal of resolve to stick with the schedule of all day sitting and walking. You know, but you can learn how to call on that in yourself. You might want to determine to be kinder to coworkers or maybe more honest in your personal relationships. And when you begin to understand how to work with the inner processes, then those those resolves have a lot more, they can get a lot more traction in reality. So this discerning wisdom helps us in knowing what we want to resolve for. 
So as a parami, it's oriented toward bringing to fruition this liberating wisdom of being able to look at how our own minds and hearts work. It's not aimed at mere worldly concerns. It's not aimed at, you know, I vow to get rich or famous or something, but, you know, to see more clearly what is causing suffering. And it keeps our attention and our energy focused in line with understanding the points of getting comfortable with constant change and overcoming clinging to self-centered views and freeing ourselves from suffering. So there's a fundamental sort of attitude that can turn into a kind of resolve naturally. I find over, I've been practicing for 20 some years now, and I find that it's, it's kind of, it functions like a resolve, and that is, I've seen the bumper sticker, I break for suffering. You know, I don't know if you've seen that one, but it's like when I catch myself, you know, the threshold of what I consider suffering is getting more and more subtle, and when I catch myself crossing that threshold, to turn to, to turn inward, to, to stop and turn to mindfulness and notice what's going on instead of continuing to struggle with trying to get everything out there to be just the way I want it. So that's a habit that is developed over the years of practice of, wait, I'm suffering. And instead of, oh, <laughs> some more, wait, let me stop and take stock and see what's going on. And so the more you kind of bring that into your awareness and make yourself raising it in consciousness, as we used to say, the more that you do that, the more it's there for you and the more you're aware that that's what you're doing and that reinforces the habit and it becomes something that you really become more resolved and determined on over time. So um, it helps, wisdom and discernment helps in knowing when it's appropriate to really call on this quality of resolve. I find that it comes into play best and most clearly after I've really seen something, I've really caught something in the act of happening very clearly. I felt it in my body and I feel like, ah, that's, that's a thing I do and I see it really clearly. And now I've kind of got a picture of it, as it were. <laughs> I have a feel for where it is. And then I can really resolve, I'm going to work with that now. If we just have a vague resolve, like, I'm going to be nicer, you know, we don't quite have a handle to pin that on. So, for example, a few, couple, three or four years ago, I caught myself launching into an internal thing where somebody made a little mistake and I was grossly exaggerating in my mind what that mistake was and how stupid that person was and imagining telling a third party, oh, look how stupid this person is, you know. And I just, it just really hit me that, oh, that's a nasty state of mind. <laughs> you know, I'm just exaggerating someone's little mistake and, you know, wanting to get somebody else to beat them up and what an ugly state of mind. And having seen it and really felt into what it was doing to my body, I just made a very clear intention. I'm going to notice every time, and I felt that there's something familiar about this, you know, so I'm going to notice every time that habit comes to mind. And then I was really able to. I noticed it many more times, just launch, starting to launch into it, and no, I'm going to let it go. And I don't, I don't, you know, maybe I'm deluded, but I don't think I do that hardly ever anymore. So it did kind of phase out of my repertoire of internal habits. Um, so then how to work with it. If you've made a resolve and you're working on it, how to work with it. 
this discernment is a constant quality that follows along as we go through life, discerning each moment what we're really doing. So, of course, you know, you're going to mess up. You know, things will happen, you'll forget, you'll do it over and over again. So there's beginning, this attitude of beginning again, beginning again, without adding on self-criticism or adding on the unnecessary belief that you can't do this. It's this is why we call it practice, and it's something that you're practicing with. I like to think also, if it's really just not working, it's something you cared about, and you thought you were ready to do, and it just, you can't do it. I, I call in mind this word that I got from my old software days, back chaining, where, you know, like you want to make dinner and you think, okay, I need this kind of food, okay, then I need to go to the store, okay, then I need to find my keys. And so you sort of work backwards to what are the requisites for to do what I intend to do. And maybe you're missing one. You know, I don't have the recipe. I can't make that. I have to make something else. And so... Um, in this way, if you can't find yourself you really just can't do it, then you might just you might need more wisdom or insight into what conditions are not in, in, in place yet for this to be a realistic thing that you want to take up. So then you can hold it as an aspiration, you know, it's more of a long-term aspiration, and just open your mind and, you know, ask the powers that be to give you some insight into what's missing here. And then just go on, you know, holding it, kind of like putting it on the back burner, but having it there and see maybe something will arise. Many times I've found that I'll read something, you know, a week later that's, oh, yeah, that's something that's really helpful in this regard, or I'll have a conversation with somebody, or, you know, if it's something that's really up for you, somehow the undermined will be looking, working on it, <laughs> and you'll find some, some help will probably arise. There's a, a way that you can resolve kind of in the sense of may I get some insight into this or may I be more calm and you're just saying this to yourself without really a clear idea of how it's going to happen but just trust, just really invoking your wish and making explicit your wish that this is something that that grows in you and that can be very helpful we, we're sort of inclining the mind in that direction and then we're open to this fresh insight about what might help so that's the first quality of discerning wisdom and then the second quality is called guarding the truth, the truth. So truth is a big word. In this context, I see in the Buddhist teaching two meanings of it. First of all, how do you determine what is true for yourself? And a synonym that he uses in the sutta that I'm basing this on later is the undeceptive. Truth as the undeceptive. So what in your experience is undeceptive? and what's deceptive, and what's true. And then this is a way to sort of sort out life's false promises from the real path to truth and happiness. You know, so, so life, we're just bombarded all the time with claims and ideas about what's going to make us happy through advertising and all sorts of stuff, and all sorts of fear. I don't know how many headlines in the last year I've said that had fear as an imperative verb. Fear this, worry about that, you know. Is, is that is that the path? <laughs> do we do we need to go that way? You know, so so you can look at both the things that are trying to scare you, and trying to make you afraid, and trying to make you hate. You know, you can look at all the ads to try to increase your your desire in various ways, and you can see that those are part of the deceptive. And then you look more and more into what can you see that's really 
the truth of how you want to move forward. Then the second aspect is guarding the truth as you have discerned it and how you want to communicate to others and how you want to communicate to yourself. So I'll say a little more about both of these. Um, Yeah, so we begin to question, as we look carefully in meditation, we begin to question not only these gross things, you know, but how much we've taken them in and how much where they come up in our minds and what our minds are telling us that we should believe and have to have and have to not have. So we really begin to look at that. We begin to see the agitation in chasing these promises. And you really have to see for yourself over and over again how trying too hard in the wrong direction is not ultimately satisfying. We really don't need one more thing we don't need to eat or to buy one more thing and you just have to see that it okay it's gone now I ate it and you know <laughs> now what and or I bought it and there it is sitting on the shelf with the other ten things and you know you have to see this over and over again until you finally begin to learn for yourself and then we can really take it a step deeper and we can look at the processes of perception themselves I've just for Christmas I received this new book called The Undoing Project which is a bestseller at the moment about how the mind just is not reliable in making decisions. And I've only read the first chapter, which happens to be about a sports recruiter recruiting a basketball star, you know, who to choose for their basketball team. And just how totally off they are at predicting how good they are and how it's all so based on, especially race, race identifications and, you know, ethnic identifications and who resembles certain stars. If you physically look like somebody who's the hot star of the moment, you're much more likely to get recruited even though you have essentially no skills. And, you know, they all overlooked this guy. You probably know basketball, some of you more than I do, but this guy, Jeremy Lin or something, he was passed over by many teams because he was Asian and nobody kind of associated Asians with being particularly good at basketball. And just all kinds of stuff where your perceptions and your preconceived ideas come into it and just aren't giving you the truth. You know, they're giving you your quick judgment on, on what, what to think about it. So as we learn to be more honest with ourselves, at least on the intellectual level, we know something like, I don't need any more kitchen gadgets or something. Then you really get to look at all that impulse coming up, but, 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 oh so cool, I want it, you know, and then you get to see what, what, what that feels like, and you get to work with that level, and that's the inside job of looking at, you know, kind of reconciling your habit energies to your more intellectual understanding of what's the right thing to do. And then on the negative side, we have this anxiety that's the result of believing that we have to think of every possible negative scenario and try to game out what we would do, you know, I can't boy, there's a long, long, long list of ways to get sick and, you know, run into some misfortune and die and whatever these days. And if you spend all day worrying about each one of them over and over and over again, you're just going to waste your life being crippled with anxiety. So I think of the Dharma as a blanket insurance policy that you practice working with your inner state of how not to suffer. And then, you know, what happens, happens. So the truth can also be a heart quality here. It's this kind of, it becomes a kind of love of getting at what's really going on, you know, and a faith that the truth is safer than these various guises of ignorance. 
And so you have a kind of devotion to the truth. Truth in this sense ultimately becomes, it's not a, a sentence or some words or a motto or a conclusion that we have and now we've got it. You know, truth becomes a way of navigating so that you're really sensing your way with maximal fidelity to what's right in front of you. I came across this quote by uh, Chogyam Trungpa, the famous uh, Tibetan, late Tibetan teacher the other week, and it's, it really, something about it really resonated with me and helped me a little bit, so I want to read you the whole paragraph. This is a little bit condensed from an interview with him, but I, I'll read it. He says, It is possible to experience every moment as having individuality in it. Once you are in a given situation, you go along with the unique pattern of it, its particular textures and so on. Relating that way to each situation as it is, is a path. There's a great deal of movement in it. It's a much more definite kind of direction than having a map or a blueprint to follow. It's a real direction. Pain will be real pain. Pleasure will be real pleasure. Confusion will be real confusion. Every situation will be a true situation, a precise one, and that is the guidance. That is the pattern that you go along with. The present situation is the destination as well as the path. Many people wish to secure their destination in the future now, but the future is not here yet. It's amazing the extent to which we deceive ourselves stretching ourselves to all sorts of territories and situations that are purely imaginary. Then everything is overcrowded. Looking at things this way, we manage to set ourselves into a great deal of paranoia and panic. But if one really sees the present situation as it is, it is always a quite simple one. So that's a view of getting really wise about the truth of this moment and, and trusting that the more sensitive and discerning you are about what that is right now, the more that is your guidance for the path. So we have this along the way to, be, to getting there and to being there, we have this resolve to allow even the very difficult things to open up as they begin to manifest. It's, it's not a hard resolve, but it's a, it's a okay, I, let me just open to this. So we find out how mindfulness and presence and this growing confidence in the practice allows us to hold many different levels of experience as true at their own level in the sense that they need less and less denial. You know, So it's true that I'm very upset right now or it's true that I'm very afraid of what's going to happen. That's true in its own sense of, yes, that's how you feel. But... Learning to hold that in mindfulness does not necessarily mean it's true that therefore all the terrible things you're thinking of will happen or that therefore you're a scared, you know, anxious person and so forth. I'm reminded of a line from Rilke I always liked, the poet. He says, I don't want to stay folded anywhere because where I am folded there I am a lie. So just letting things open up and be seen. Opening, going through letting the doors in the mind open. And then I want to say a little bit more about guarding the truth in the sense of what you put out. Um, That's an area where you can really benefit from some resolve, making a resolve to notice what you're going to say and to notice when you're slightly fudging on the truth or when, you know, what motives come into that. 
there's a lovely teaching of the Buddha about guarding the truth by prefacing it like, this is what I figured out, this is what I read, you know, this is what I have decided, this is what I believe, this is what I heard. All those things are ways of preserving the truth rather than just it is so, you know. Imagine if our public discourse were, you know, this is what I heard on this place, this is what I heard on that place. I think we're going to need to get wiser about this so that we can figure out how to discern what's, what's what in the news these days, right? This is the source of this, and then the person who's hearing it can take it according to their understanding of that. And then personally, in resolving to be true to yourself, gets back to this kind of New Year's resolution not being so wise unless you really are wise about it and do it. But if you make a resolve to yourself, you don't want to make them cheaply, you know, a dime a dozen, oh, never mind, oh, never mind, never mind. You know, that's a kind of forming a lack of trust, training yourself and not trusting yourself. So you can look at this as a way of training yourself to trust yourself by being judicious about when you, what you really resolve on. I, I find it very easy to not eat supper when I'm on the eight precepts regime at a monastic retreat where they don't serve supper. And I've tried using that at home by taking the eight precepts. And I, I have a sense kind of for when I'm, when it's kind of hold and when it isn't. And I like to kind of keep, it's funny, but I, I like to, it's not, food is a big issue for me. And it's not something that I, I want to use lightly, you know. So I really take it seriously. And I kind of, if there's a day when I know I have a lot of stress coming, I don't want to kind of cheapen the value of taking this vow by knowing that I won't stick with it. So I don't. You know, but then I, I try to assess times when I feel like this is a good time to practice with that and to strengthen my ability to really commit to it. And, and then, you know, push an edge a little bit, but not to where it, it kind of cheapens the value of holding that promise as a serious, you know, commitment to myself. So the third quality is uh, devotion to relinquishment. So... Resolve itself, if you think of it, is a lot about focusing, right? It's giving up some stuff in order to focus on some other stuff. You're going to do this, not that. And so in, in the very act of resolving on something, you're giving up something. Uh, maybe you're familiar with this, uh, these initials FOMO, fear of missing out. I think that goes around a lot today. So uh, first time I heard of that, that really rang a bell. Yeah, that's a motive I have for an awful lot of stuff. You know, oh, what, I, what if I don't read that book or hear that song or go to that event or, you know, read this editorial or whatever. Fear of missing out. I feel a little bit of that every morning when I, I have a, a practice going now of really trying not to read the news first thing, you know, do sit first and so forth. And so, but then there's that little, oh, but what, but what? You know, what happened? Same old thing happened. Let it go. Um, so we're really talking about letting go of lesser gain for greater gain. That's a helpful way to phrase it. You know, you're always relinquishing something because you're only doing one thing at a time. So how much, how often as a habit are you relinquishing the possibility for deeper peace of mind in order to keep having all kinds of distractions and entertainment? So it helps us that in bringing a focus and a higher purpose to our lives helps us to elevate our concerns above the everyday dramas. I used to have a, a manager at work who had this 
phrase on his wall, don't let the urgent drive out the vital. You know, it's so easy to just have every day, there's a million things you have to do and there's no time to sit, for example, or there's no time to just take a breath and, you know, re realize where you are in your priority list. So I tend to keep a list of what I consider vital intentions in mind. You know, I, I read things and I write them down and every once in a while I think it's useful to go back and kind of select and actually, you know, elevate in my mind, okay, what are the three or four things that I'm really, really up for me these days? You know, and write them on the bullet, write them on the refrigerator or something like that so that I see them. And it's a changing list or, or I'll read some practice instructions that really make sense to me. And so I have a kind of a list of, you know, oh yeah, I want to get back and work on that instruction I heard, or I want to get back and work on that. So it's very helpful to just, you know, write these things down and then go back and look at it and think, okay, these things are up for me and, and just keep, you know, keep a kind of moving list of what are your real priorities in the spiritual arena so that you're not just drowned in the details of daily life all the time. On a calendar somewhere, I came across this quote from the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who was also a philosopher. He says, perfection of character is this, to live each day as if it were your last, without frenzy, without apathy, without pretense. I really, I really love those three, so those are on my fridge at the moment. Without frenzy, without apathy, and without pretense. You know, so I just, I catch myself frenzy a lot. That's up a lot. Uh -huh. <laughs> Back of my mind, wait, wait. You know, no frenzy. <clears throat> okay, so then finally, I, I, well, not finally, but related to the devotion to relinquishment. For many years, I've carried around non-clinging as the essential one-word summary of what Dharma practice is all about. It's mentioned many, many places in the suttas and... I just always come back to what am I clinging to? Clinging is this essential resistance to reality, which is always changing. You know, something's always changing, always changing. And we're always wanting to put our little cookie-cutter views on what's happening and make it hold still and not do that or keep doing this or whatever. And so that's really the, the pith word for where's that, what's going on that's causing a lot of suffering. So when we're looking at relinquishing unskillful habits of mind and making resolves in that regard, I find it very helpful to think of these as values instead of goals. You know, so when we make a resolve, we're often thinking, I'm going to do that, and then we keep picturing how enlightened I'm going to be or how thin and healthy I'm going to be or something. And that's not really that... It's to some degree helpful, but it's not the essence of what's helpful in keeping it moment to moment. But if we can phrase this as a value, to ourselves as a value, this is something I value, then that's much more supportive in actually engaging with it moment by moment when the, when the imaginary final reward is nowhere in sight. You know, it's, there's always the fact that we really value this. And we can also see, in a way, we can use anxiety to see where we're clinging. So there's a certain wisdom in anxiety because we're always holding on to something. We're expecting that something, we're placing our well-being on hanging on to something that is essentially unreliable, usually. 
is what's is where we wind up feeling anxious. And so we can use that to really investigate what do we need to relinquish here. And then as a support for working with a resolve after you've made a resolve, if you find that you're having difficulty with it, you can notice have I fallen into striving and overdoing it in some way and clinging too hard to I have to do this and making, you know, having a hard mind around it. And then you can look at maybe, maybe you can cling less, maybe I need to do less, you know, maybe I can hold it more lightly or some, some way in which you can lighten up the way you're holding how you do it. So the final quality is to train only for calm and peace. And I like this. Gil, I've always appreciated Gill's uh, frequent instruction to take being at ease as uh, an, an, a something that you really appreciate in your life and notice when you're feeling at ease and then notice what takes you away from it. So we're really aiming at doing whatever we do with a sense of ease. And part of, part of this practice, we, we talk a lot about suffering and looking at suffering and all that, but another part of this practice that hopefully we're learning to get somewhat through meditation and through relinquishment and through wisdom is some tastes of calm and peace and happiness. There's a lovely list of of a progression of states of happiness that go through gladness and joy and and uh, tranquility and happiness and contentment and peace that lead us through deeper and deeper and more profound states of ease and peace with the world. And as we get more tastes of these, then that's actually becomes more, our path becomes more and more about cultivating those and, and less, less, too much focus on you know, working with my suffering and more about how can I, how can I maintain some ease and peace that I've touched into and just let, it becomes easier to let things go when you see, oh, they're interfering with this state that I've really become quite um, clear is a better state. And true resolving actually has this quality of calm in it because we've become, if you're really making a resolve that's likely to work for you and carry through it's got that kind of coming to rest in it like okay I'm ready to do this I'm going to do this I'm going to let go of all this dithering about am I going to am I not going to there's a peace and no I'm going to do it I've made my decision so I I had this thing I did last summer where I (laughs) I went to I manage a retreat and I cook breakfast and it was a five weeks long retreat with a monastic and involved getting up at 4.30 every morning to cook breakfast for five weeks. And I've done this before, but I have usually do it with a certain amount of whiny mind of, oh, I don't really, I hate getting up that early. It's odd that I've taken up this retreat practice where you get up that early. But anyway, I always kind of struggle with it and I kind of don't. And I set my alarm clock and I hit the snooze button a couple of times and then I'm kind of frantically running down there. And usually once a retreat, I'm really late and breakfast is late and I'm embarrassed. And so I found that I was kind of dreading this five-week stretch of needing to do this. And so I took, I took this teaching on resolve and I really worked with it. And I just got to the point where I said, okay, I'm just going to get up and do it. And I'm just going to drop all this. And it worked. And I did it. And I just, I, I never had a moment of struggle with it. Every morning, you know, I went off, I got up, and I fixed breakfast. And it was just without that extra level of struggling and worrying about it, it was easier. And then, you know, it stayed easy. 
So um, there's a wonderful book on the Paramis by a British monk, Ajahn Suchito. It's a wonderful book. And he has a little section on how to make a resolve that I just want to read. He says, think it over slowly and carefully, noticing the feelings and the mental reactions. Every time the mind responds half-heartedly with thoughts such as, well, I'll give it a try, or it quails with doubt, you pause, you bring back the thought of the resolution again, slowly and deliberately passing it through the mind. Do this until the mind's response is quiet and has a strengthened feel to it. You might like to complete the resolution by a physical moment, such as folding your arms or standing up with a few moments of silence again. And finally, you might mention it to a trusted friend to add some strength. So we can work with this parmi in different scopes and time frames. We can make it on a very small scope of, you know, I'm going to sit for 20 minutes and I'm set my timer, and then you work with not saying never mind in the middle. You know, you, you see it through. You can make use of uh, what you do, you know, in the sitting. You're, you're going to stay with your focus, which is maybe your body or your breath or just simply presence of mind. You can kind of highlight, when you first sit down, highlight your actual intention to do that while you're sitting. Or then there can be very long-term aspirations. You know, I remember back when I was still working full-time, I really wanted to... I became clear that I wanted to have a lot more time available to go on retreat and eventually I just wanted to devote my life to Dharma practice. And that influenced a lot of decisions I made, you know. I would take work that was not as glamorous but that would give me more time off or I would, I would, I passed up moving somewhere because I wanted to stay where this community is and all sorts of things, you know, and eventually I would, I did actually wind up managing to get in the situation that I wanted. There's a famous story of uh, the Buddha many, many lifetimes ago, well, incalculable eons ago, like, you know, universes ago, when the previous Buddha of the previous world system, I don't know how you relate to this grand mythological level of Buddhism, but the the Buddha of the previous system was coming to town, and there was this ascetic, and he came to see the Buddha Dipankara, who was the name of the previous Buddha, and he, he was so inspired that he vowed that in a future lifetime he would be born, he would be the next Buddha. And the Buddha Dipankara saw this vow and used his powers to see that it would be true and told him that it would be true. And that's in the, in the stories of the past lives of our Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama. He was this ascetic many lifetimes ago who vowed that he would be the Buddha. So this grand scope of many, 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 many eons of lifetimes and the stories of his previous lives. He was different animals and he was different people in different situations working on perfecting these paramis until finally he was born in a lifetime where he was able to be a Buddha. So maybe that's inspiring. But anyway, you can have a long-term aspiration for your life. You know, if you have careers and marriages and children, in a way, you've, you've made a long-term aspiration for your life, right? To carry through something that's a very long-term commitment. So I just want to return briefly to this Sutta um, 140. I, I don't have time to tell the whole story of that Sutta right now, but I just wanted to... 
this guy sits through the night with the Buddha not realizing who the Buddha is, but he's a very accomplished meditator who is on the way to find the Buddha, but he, they secretly wind up staying in the same shed together for the night. So the Buddha gives him these teachings. And he, it's a kind of a one-night cram course in the last bit of getting enlightened because this guy was already very accomplished. And then at the very end, so he phrases the practice that he's teaching him in terms of these four qualities. And then at the end he describes um, what is the highest determination, the highest achievement of each of these determinations. And so for uh, the determination for discernment, the highest is the knowledge of the passing away of all suffering and distress. When you're able to discern, I've done it. There's no more, you know, it's been done. There's no more. Done is what has to be done. I've done it. You're not thinking that by that time. But done is what has to be done, is what they usually say. There's no more stress. So that's the highest in discerning that. that. And then the highest of the undeceptives is the experience of Nibbana. And it's described as the undeceptive. And... Uh, then the highest relinquishment is the renunciation of all mental acquisitions. Formerly, he foolishly had taken on mental acquisitions, and he's now abandoned them. So you completely drop these intentions and the kind of influence of the mind on wanting and having to make things happen and believing things and views and all that. You've completely dropped all that. And then the highest determination for calm is the calming of the passions, aversions, and delusions. And at the end, it's described as the tides of conceiving. It's this mental habit of thinking of things in terms of I, me, and mine. Do not sweep over one who stands on these foundations. And when the tides of conceiving no longer sweep over him, he is called a sage at peace. So, I just thought, for completion, we should look at what's the ultimate direction of all four of these things. And in case that's a little lofty for you, I just want to come back to Ajahn Suchito one more time. He has a lovely conclusion here. He, he practiced, he, in his chapter on this quality, he describes many practices that he undertook, like sitting up, with, practicing for three months without lying down and all kinds of things like that that he was inspired to do at the time. And now he says... Over time, my resolve energy has simplified and calmed to one of sustaining the attitude, may this action or thought be for my welfare, the welfare of others, and lead to peace. Compared with the more extreme practices, such a resolve doesn't make the headlines, but it acts as a life commitment and a basis for external action, inquiry, and insight. So I, I really love this. May this action or thought be for my welfare, the welfare of others, and lead to peace. So maybe that's one for the refrigerator. <laughs> so those are my thoughts on this uh, resolving, which you can consider if you're given to New Year's resolutions. So we have a few minutes. If anybody has any questions or comments or anything you'd like to share about working with us, or me. Any of you make New Year's resolutions? <laughs> and maybe they work out, you know. 
some people like that idea of a new start, you know, it's a fresh time to clarify your mind. It's not, it's not, I'm not saying it's not a valuable thing to do ever. If it's, if it's a time that works for you as a fresh way to think about it. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, there's a wisdom in knowing what, you know, what really is inspiring, you know, not adding more. We don't want to add more things that we feel as pressure that we're not really ready to. But sometimes there's an inspiration, you know, like, okay, I'm going to try to make it here every Tuesday or something. That's, you know, it's realistic. Yeah. Yeah, we have recordings. Yeah, I've, can you hear me? Second, okay. I've found that I have a similar um, difficulty with food uh-huh. And I definitely have strong craving for milkshakes uh-huh. um, late at night. And um, what you said about not adding to the criticism when um, you're unable to meet a goal to resist a craving, mm-hmm. I think that really helps. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to ask you what yeah from your experience what sort of practices have you done that have been successful in terms of resisting a craving mhm mhm well i think the most helpful thing for me has been to um not think of it in terms of i have to stop but thinking of it in terms of how can I learn, keep the light of awareness on throughout the process. So I become more interested in what I can learn about myself. And I've I've really come to trust that there's some deep need that's being met here or some deep, I don't know that maybe the ice cream isn't really meeting the need, but there's some deep inner conflict that I haven't really seen through. And some, you know, it, it, I read somewhere that, you know, the ultimate, thing is we're not enlightened (laughs) so can I use this as inspiration to see more deeply and feel more deeply what this is and so for example I eat something and I try to stay with when I have the energy not when it's going to add more stress but when I have some curiosity and energy and it's a real borderline case of whether I have it or not if I okay I'm going to have it but I'm really going to watch and I'm going to see if I can learn the truth about what they say, that there's only a little moment of flavor and then it's gone, you know. And then I can see, try to feel into, I've learned a lot about bodily feelings and what is it actually that wants that. It's a kind of, especially something like a milkshake, it's ice cream, it's kind of a craving for sweetness and soothing. And what are the qualities that you actually want? And there are ways, there are times when I've been so careful in my observing that I've really been able to do that even before I eat it you know standing there kind of feeling or sitting there about to get up feeling what it what is it that really wants this and then I've learned a lot about craving and I've learned a lot about where to let where I can let go and sometimes just a very sweet satisfied feeling comes up from having sat there and been that open and gentle with myself and caring and open to what's really happening you know, and, and then sometimes I eat the ice cream, but I feel like I've learned a lot, you know, and I'm not holding it as a, you know, a thing I must or mustn't do, but an, an, a way to learn from it. So I would say that. 
Same thing with struggling to get up early. I really let myself lie there in bed and feel, what is it that's so supportive about this? You know, and what what am I what am I liking? What am I thinking? I don't have to do what? Am, how can I, and then how can I bring that part with me as I get up, so that I'm not kind of harshly abandoning a sense of support when I get up, but I'm bringing a sense of being with myself and bringing my support, my inner support system with me as I get up. You know, things like that. So just see what you can learn from it. Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm sorry, I have to ask a little bit of a self-serving question of, um, of your following the path and this path for you, and you said that you, you had started when you realized that you wanted to give your life to following the Dharma practice, that you, um, have you been happy? Have you ever doubted then that what came up for you to call you to it and then to proceed along it and as you've gone through your life, has it been a fruitful? I mean, it's kind of this kind of a easy, oh, yes, you know. Yes. Yeah, but I, I'm curious about the process and the doubt. Yeah. If you ever, yeah, I have, I have doubt and not doubt. That's a great question because, yeah, because sure. I mean, I have. It's interesting to me to reflect on what what I doubt and what parts I don't doubt. And I've also I've supplement. You know, it's it's this idea. I don't know if you were here when I talked about this idea of chaining back to figure out what you need, you know. So this is not a hundred percent solution for everybody. The whole the wisdom of the world is getting growing in all kinds of directions. So Western psychology and the physical body work that trauma therapists do and yoga and, you know, there's all kinds of things that, that I find it very helpful to bring in, you know. So I don't, I would say that it's kind of, it's pretty clear to me that there's a heck of a lot you can improve by looking inward in the way that the Buddha suggests, you know, and by learning to see what's going on here. And so I, I've regarded the Dharma teachings as a sort of, a, you know, if you're not mindful and aware, you, how are you going to know what is working or what you need, you know? So these are fundamental life skills that we can cultivate. And at that level, I don't really doubt it. It's made sense to me from the beginning. And I've I've pursued it, but it often comes the need for something else, or to to you know do some physical exercise, or to do some you know talk to somebody else in a therapeutic way has come, you know it's come clear that that's what I need, and often it comes as a kind of doubting the Dharma, like oh this is no good, this isn't helping, I need to do something else, you know, and I'll be in that mood for a while, but then I'll really notice no this is complementary, this fits in with it, this is I need all these skills I have from the Dharma in order to get more out of that, you know, and so it doesn't, anytime you're expecting a kind of you know, miracle out of one thing and all that, it's going to come with a lot of doubt, you know, but I would just say keep looking at what, you know, there's something that drew you to it and some parts that make sense, you know, and you can look at the parts that make sense and not over-idealize, you know, how easy it's supposed to be or how perfect everyone else is or how all the teachers are so perfect and how come I'm not after, you know, all this time. And, you know, none of that is particularly helpful, so... Just recognize doubt and, you know, don't trust, do trust yourself to go find what you need and integrate it and keep the parts that make sense to you and 
hold the rest as maybe someday it will make sense to you, you know. I don't know if that's helpful, but yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's a mic there. I don't know if it's along the same path, but the, the times that I have doubt um, are when it's it's around my mind. Uh-huh. I um, I'm from San Diego, but my uh, my job can take me anywhere. And uh, I guess it was about six months ago. I was back in San Diego. I mean, I could have stayed in San Diego. I have friends there and a, a child there. I have a child here too. Um, but. Uh, I really wanted to return here, and it was because this is a community very rich in the Dharma. You right. know, so many places I can go. It, it's just, it's it's not as available in Southern California. They just opened their first Insight Center, but m my mind would say, "No, you need to stay in San Diego." But my heart kept saying, "No, I want to come back to mm -hmm. um, to a Dharma community, which is 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 much more plentiful than what I can find." And, in mm -hmm. Southern California. Mm -hmm. So the doubts came from, you yeah. know, this is not practical, this is not what you should be doing, you know, your house is there, your child is there, your friends are there, mm -hmm. you know, and, but, you know, my heart, uh, my spiritual path said, it was almost so I couldn't help it. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so my doubts come when my mind tells me mm -hmm. this is not, mm -hmm. um, what you should be doing, mm -hmm. and it's but it's yeah. really difficult to follow yeah. my heart, yeah. Because I'm, it's, yeah. you know, I, I my mind has me full of fear. Mm -hmm. That's so right. It's like a, that's right. That's that's great. That's a great description of making difficult decisions. You know, that's 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 true. I mean, often our heads and hearts are in conflict. You know, and and a lot of the Dharma practice is about opening up so that you can recognize what is coming from fear and what's coming from inspiration and are the fears realistic or not realistic you know you, you there's nothing for it but to just use the practice of self-awareness to slow down and to some extent often when we're in a situation of back and forth i should or i shouldn't like that we're just kind of serially totally identifying with one side or the other you know like Oh, I can't, it's going to be terrible. Oh, I want to, it's going to be perfect. You know, and we're going back and forth believing those things. So the whole thing about practice is to back up so that you're sort of, you're sort of that higher mind function that can see, okay, this is what's going on. Maybe this one has a little tone of hysteria about it or it's making, it's exaggerating how difficult it's going to be or something. And maybe this one's, a, you know, a little idealistic about how perfect it's going to be and... So you just kind of feel into it and finally you kind of learn to trust which one really feels more like a kind of opening life forward, you know, but grounded. You learn when you're grounded and when you're kind of lost in fantasy one way or the other. You know, you just have to kind of discern that. And also then trust that that process is the path. So it's not a waste of time to sit in San Diego and do that kind of practice thinking about whether to move or not. You are doing the practice. You know, so in moment to moment, things will become more clear about what motives you want to make and what are your priorities. And, you know, it takes a long time for most of us to get clear about the fact that 
our lives are, you know, they're not getting longer as we look ahead. They're, you know, time is kind of getting shorter and we do need to prioritize and we need to figure out what's important and nothing is completely safe and everything is somewhat risky and what, you know, what are, what do we want to trust fundamentally? You know, and so how does this come clear to you is, is the practice. So even the, you know, making decisions is a great area for practice. And trusting, you know, trusting that, you know, ultimately you'll do something and then what do you do? Then you just practice with where you are. You know, I so appreciated a teacher who would tell me, well, just do one or the other and then be there, you know. <laughs> if, if it doesn't work out here, go back there. <laughs> but, you know, you, you just be where you are and you're always, you've always got what's in front of you to work with. And we're not going to get it right. There isn't any perfect, you know, decision. Okay, well, it's 11.08, so thank you. <laughs> thank you. Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs>